So this morning, just to give a sutta reference, this one is in the Connected Discourses, Sangyutta Nikaya, um, the 46th book, 55th Sutta. So if you look at if you look at these things, the annotation will be S46.55. Similes for the hindrances. So, because the suttas are rather repetitive, I'll paraphrase it somewhat, condense it. So the, the Buddha says, just imagine a bowl of water. Uh, it's got all kinds of dye in it, so that when you look into that water to look at the reflection of your face, you wouldn't see your face as it actually is, because of all this coloration. In the same way, when one remains with awareness possessed by sensual passion, overcome with sensual passion, and neither knows nor sees the escape as it is, actually present from sensual passion once it has arisen, then one neither knows nor sees what is for one's own benefit, or for the benefit of others, or for the benefit of both. Now imagine a bowl of water heated on a fire, boiling and bubbling over, so that some with good eyesight looking at the reflection of their face in it would not be able to know or see their face as it actually is. In the same way, one remains with awareness possessed by ill will, overcome with ill will, and neither knows nor sees the escape as it actually as it is actually present from ill will once it has arisen. Then one neither knows nor sees what is for one's own benefit, benefit of others or the benefit of both. Now imagine a bowl of water covered with algae and slime, so that someone with good eyesight looking at the reflection of their face would not be able to know or see the face as it actually is. In the same way one remains with awareness possessed by its sloth and drowsiness, overcome with sloth and drowsiness, and neither knows nor sees the escape as it is actually present from sloth and drowsiness, and so forth. Now imagine a bowl of water ruffled by the wind, disturbed, covered with waves, so that Someone with good eyesight, looking at the reflection of their face, would not be able to know or see the face as it actually is. In the same way, one remains with awareness possessed by restlessness and anxiety, overcome with restlessness and anxiety, neither knows nor sees the escape as it is actually present from restlessness and anxiety once it has arisen, one neither knows nor sees what is one's own benefit, benefit of others, benefit of both. Now imagine a bowl of water stirred up, turbid, muddied, left in the dark, so that someone with good eyesight examining the reflection of the face would not be able to know or see the face as it actually is. In the same way one remains with awareness possessed by uncertainty, overcome with uncertainty 
and neither knows nor sees the escape as it is actually present from uncertainty once it has arisen. One neither knows nor sees what is for one's own benefit or the benefit of others or for the benefit of both. So this is a theme, you're probably fully aware of the five hindrances, one of these classical lists. And you might think, only five? (laughs) So these are the kind of, you might say, the basic ingredients of the hindrance mixtures that uh, can arise and often come in clusters. One feels averse, one's drowsiness. (laughs) One feels averse, one's sense of desire. And so forth, or get fascinated by one's doubts. Um, um, so, and this is uh, one of the remarkable things about the Buddha's teaching, in my opinion, is it talks about things that are, we will understand conceptually, ill will, but he often uses very concrete um, presentations. And uh, this is this certainly brings it alive, because you get a scenario there, which itself is worthy of examination. Uh, this is a really interesting, beautiful metaphor, analogy. And you might also consider, perhaps it's a little more than an analogy, is actually talking about trying to put in words what the chitta actually feels like. Not just as a metaphor, but this stuff, this mind, is not just a kind of vacuous, abstract space. There's a substance there. The substance is not all those colours and movements and waves, there's a substance there. A reflective substance of some kind, you know. You know, it's clearly it's not physical substance, but uh, there's some kind of essence, property, quality that has these things affecting it. And he is using the image of water. There's quite a bit of water in the in the descriptions of citta. Uh, when we talk about the jhana, they're very watery. Uh, sense of pervading, like someone mixing up soap powder with water and saturating the body with it. The pleasure of that. And then other other metaphors of jhana, sitting in a in water with lotus flowers arising out of the water, or crystal clear streams flowing into it, and all the time one is sitting in it, saturated in it. So one could kind of consider these metaphors as both quite beautiful poetic uh, analogies that make something very concrete, not just abstract or philosophical, but very concrete. And might also bear in mind, perhaps it's just saying exactly as it is. <laughs> in a language that we can understand, we know what water is. Do you know what energy is? Yeah. Or what I'm calling energy, that's just another word, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and it's reflective. Something that both has a subtle 
substance it's not hard or concrete it's very amorphous but it contains these currents and it can be disturbed stirred up heated uh, stained it does it does seem to you know take on particular qualities that again are not just principles they have an energetic or some kind of substance to them bubbling, slimy and it's reflective and one can see one's face in it so in some way this jitta presents the sense of I It's a subjective sense. This is looking into this, you're getting a true reflection about I, not a person, but uh, you know, something that can see you reflects. Has no particular opinion. Sees your face. Hmm. This is quite a. It's it's not nothing. It's not a kind of vacuity through which phenomena tumble. It's something that has a reflective property to it that you can actually look into or will give something back to you when you look at it or show you purity or impurity when you look into it. And although it does get stained and turbulent, the stains and the turbulences, and the algae and the, and the mud and so forth, they are intruded, they're intrusions that occur on it, not its true nature and certainly not a description of your face. Although when you look in it, you may very well think, oh, that's me. I'm hot and steaming, I'm sludgy and grimy, I'm slimy and mouldy. <laughs> I think the Buddha would say, in such a case, does this person have a spark of wisdom? <laughs> Fancy thinking that they're, they're the mud and the slime because we don't see as it actually is we see as things we see the forms that become something that morph and shift and change and we see those Uh, we're looking in that we're looking in the right place but we're not quite seeing the water we're seeing what sits on the water Mm. this is the common theme Notice it says, uh, does not realize the escape as it is actually present. That's a pretty phenomenal statement. That's repeated right in this scenario, does not see as it actually is, the escape. And you might 
think, well, actually, perhaps if you really saw the water rather than the, the dye and the algae and the, and the bubbling, if you actually focused on the water, maybe that would be a way to get a true reflection. So we see these kind of veils, turbulences moving over the chitta, certainly. And then the uh, question is, well, how does one escape from them or, or abolish them or settle them? And here the term is used, escape, nisarano. Hmm. Slightly different movement, isn't it? Than getting into that, that bowl of water and trying to throw out all the dye and the slime. Slightly different, perhaps. And we might very well extending that analogy, consider, well, if you see all this kind of stuff in the water and you thought, okay, all this terrible stuff, I'll, I'll get rid of it, and you've jumped into the water with your knife and you hacked away, would the water not be more stirred up and agitated? So something perhaps slightly different than um, that strategy is being suggested. One remains with awareness. So chitta here is translated as awareness, which is a very fundamental property of chitta. The two properties, as far as I can make out, or two dominant properties, one it's aware, it's knowing, knowing not creating concepts, it's just it is mirror-like or lake-like. You see, it presents, it's noetic, it, it acknowledges. The other is its tends, tendency to be stimulated, stirred. So it's got this sensitivity, which can be problematic, it's overheated, overcharged, it's also aware, reflective. And these two properties have to be understood and moderated and trained and so forth. So how do these uh, phenomena take over? Mm -hmm. Why does the chitta, why does awareness become possessed by these? Why put dye in the water? What is it that throws the colours into the water, the purple and the crimson and the yellow and so forth? Something seeks some stimulation, doesn't it? Something seeks some something a bit more a little more brilliant or vivid than that water. Mm. So how would one 
not or see an escape from that habit since we probably acknowledge something in me runs out search even I sit quietly in a, in a hall nobody's bothering me and so forth my mind is still coming up with images of food or drink or sounds or something or the other you know, colouring it searching for coloration maybe it's because the water has not been really acknowledged, appreciated, enjoyed sensed, touched, tasted as it actually is in its lovely, clean, bright cooling qualities so if one really enjoyed that felt happy with it felt satisfied with it there wouldn't be this reflex to throw stuff into it, would there? to put coloration into it and so often in in, uh, describing skillful qualities the Buddha presents something and says then one makes much of it enjoys it takes delight in it definitely there's a sense in which there's a movement not just to notice a skillful quality or try to generate one but actually to really appreciate and taste it get as close as you can to it and then this clearly cannot be done if we hold the skillful quality purely as a principle or a word so if we say something like kindness I think we all think that's a good thing and we'd all what's it feel like? this is a fairly obvious one what does it feel like? what does it taste like? what's so good about it anyway? why does it make you feel good? kind of warm heart seems to open feel more comfortable there's a a lovely rising a swelling really very beautiful I really like that so you get right on to what's that then? that's I would call that heart energy what's it like if we have cultivate the precept of harmlessness we'd all might say agree that it's not suitable to cruelly destroy life destructively we might disapprove of that what does it feel like harmlessness so one tastes it enjoys it savours it as a beautiful gentleness tenderness availability to creatures great or small you're sensitised by them their uniqueness sentiency is a miracle that anything is alive can generate, grow, move, change, shift produce itself have vitality in it this is just wow so that real deep appreciation and, and feeling oneself befriended by life human beings in general when they've adopted exploitation as the relationship to the natural world 
you know, I like a tree because it's good lumber. <laughs> I like a, I like an animal because the meat's tasty. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's kind of gone off, hasn't it? That's gone off. Can we, you know, sense a tree or a creature as an amazing phenomenon that you could not possibly replicate or create with its intelligences? It's like, this is something special. So if you move from, you know, any, any idea of, well, how good is it? Or is it going to get in my way? Or is it going to be a nuisance in my backyard? <laughs> the ownership model, ownership, exploitation, what good is it to me anyway? To the appreciation. So, you know, we kind of go on about that particular track, but you see what I mean? What cruelty we have brought upon ourselves without really even knowing it inducted into this we own, we use we take (coughs) we dispose of we exploit, we control we don't appreciate things as they actually are and the result of that is we do exactly the same to ourselves. That kind of habit then comes back. Get what you can out of this thing. Use it. Make it work. Is it useful? Is it going the right way? Yeah, you know, what is it? <laughs> do it to the body. Yeah, trying to make it look a certain way or. Appreciate the vitality of it, honour it as a miracle. Can we do that to the mind, to the heart, the sentiency, sensitivity, awareness? So they're not just abstract concepts. We relate to them as, as unique, amazing felt realities. The only reality, everything else is just an object formed by our relationships to them. A cow is a, is a is a meat object, a food object, <laughs> you know, or a milk thing. So, you know, our usage determines what the thing is. And do we are we trying to liberate? Our relationships to experience to one of appreciation and and beauty. So we cultivate in such a way that skillful states are not just a moral obligation that you've got to get good at, but any one of them which you all have is savoured, lingered in, because they're food. And if the heart feeds on those, it doesn't get restless and hungry. It doesn't get murky and agitated. It doesn't get fearful and depressed because it's getting the good food. 
So we try to really reframe skillful to be fulfilling, nourishing. And, and we relate to it, relate to them like that, then it will become like that. <laughs> That's the story. <laughs> a relationship determines what a thing is. A relationship determines how a thing is experienced. So, if we take heart or mind or awareness just as some kind of abstract state, or that's what it is. And then you kind of, yeah, that's kind of nice, but yeah, but like a bagel too. <laughs> Or some ice cream. Why not? It's not no, it's not a sin, but you've already got something pretty marvellous that doesn't come and go like that. And your taste buds get more refined. And so this is a whole kind of rationale, if it's a rational process, but like an intuitive growth where you something turns away from what is no longer experienced as nourishing, interesting, enhancing. It's just stuff. Enough is enough. Movement away from sensual passion. Because if that movement is not fulfilled, then we end up having a kind of war against sensuality. And this certainly is the case, particularly, obviously, Religious orders, where you know throughout history, the war against the flesh, temptations of the flesh, and uh, so forth, and kind of the bitterness and hardness and harshness that comes from that, and the, you know sterility can come from that, and even really some pretty weird neurotic behaviour <laughs> come and come from that. The heart is kind of soured, crippled. Yeah, of course. Some people get it right. Because the ones who do get it right generally have a strong devotional practice to you know to counteract and enriching the heart with that. But the Buddha was very strong never waver from the line that as far as he was concerned asceticism was the path to hell (laughs) because it's an act of cruelty towards the citta so when we contemplate you know sense data we see food warmth simple things like this or whatever one's mind can conjure up you know, how, how enriching and valuable is that? Uh, does it generate a constant pull of hunger? How beautiful is that? How, how appreciable, how fulfilling is that? Uh, is it something you've got to constantly stimulate because the jitter is just so out of touch that it can't realize itself? How sad is that? Therefore, it makes an effort to steady, to hold, to enter, to understand, to touch the citta, 
and yeah, appreciate it. So Mudita, Mudita is one of the cardinal um, heart principles, heart qualities. Anamodana is the phrase we rejoice, we are gladdened by acts of, of goodness and kindness. And cultivating that in yourself. So your will water heated on a fire boiling and bubbling over this is ill will. So ill will can be many forms um, Righteousness, prickliness, irritability, grumpiness, sourness, cynicism, yeah, blaming, and they all can, they're all uh, triggered by disagreeable uh, feeling, some kind, physical but most generally uh, uh, emotional, uh, triggered by emotionally uncomfortable feeling. Some comfortable feeling can be signs that remind one of threat or uh, dismissal, uh, signs that thwart one's will or wants to go a certain way you can't, therefore there's a you know, resistance to that. Signs that do that. Mm. Um, inferred hostility. People don't like me. There's something wrong with me. Ill will. Those kind of there can be, and so one bearing ill will, we get some kind of emotional or psychological sense of not comfortable not comfortable because what I want to do I can't uh, not comfortable because I don't feel comfortable with the people around me threatened, lessened uh, not comfortable because distressing phenomena arise with my awareness and for the acts of others I find despicable, ignoble makes me so angry, frustrated, yeah. all reasonable, understandable triggers that I'm sure we all have at some time or another. So just saying your will is bad is not going to solve, solve it. <laughs> we try to understand the causes of ill will. What is it that the jitter is trying to defend itself from, or feel overshadowed by. Yeah. And if you under, see it as it actually is, the only thing that dis, disturbs it really is its own bubbling and boiling. Or retracting and, and hardening. Is it possible? Is it possible? Is it possible to train in ways of experiencing unpleasant feeling that is unpleasant, disagreeable, 
but I don't get boiled. I don't get boiled by it. Yeah. Blame, disagreeable, and being treated unjustly is disagreeable. I don't see that as a cause of rejoicing. But is it possible to to arrive at a, a place where you say this person is acting unjustly? That's their issue. I don't take that in. And the Buddha says it is. He certainly received enough himself. Accusations, attempted murder, uh, and so forth and so forth. And people he would trusted, betraying, uh, causing problems. You know, it could be, so it could get very, you can imagine you could get very righteous. Yeah. And yet, didn't bother to do that. Maintaining the presence of awareness as uh, primary, chitta as primary, steadying it, holding it steadily against these forces that are irritating, disappointing, frustrating, and so forth. Because once we place Chitta as the most important thing, then the rest of it is just, yeah, it's, it's not good. It's not right. It's not appropriate. But perhaps if I sustain this quality, live it out, live with it, speak it, the non-ill will, the non-flustered, the non-bowed down, you know, and this will actually repel those influences from my heart. It seems like a big job. It's not a small job. But at least if I could stop having ill will towards myself, it would be a good start. <laughs> Surely. You know, it's difficult enough already. Uh, to live without ill will with so many things one could be annoyed by frustrated by feeling quite strongly negative about in the actions of human beings could I at least not have ill will towards myself not keep saying you're not good enough inadequate, should be better failure, miserable haven't made it, pathetic So at least that, (laughs) trying to understand those currents and forces that are associated with, I am am good if I can do things. If I can't do things, it's no good. I'm impotent, useless. If I can achieve things, I'm okay. If I can't achieve things, I'm a failure. Useless, pathetic. You're running those equations. But we recognize that water doesn't achieve anything. It's just water. It offers reflection. It does that perfectly. That's its job. It offers a place of purity. It doesn't offer, you know, credits or rewards. 
you don't measure it. This is why it's clearly one of the liberations of the chitta is through the immeasurable mind, which is a is a phrase the Buddha used for what we call the Brahma Vihara, the mind that do, has no measuring to it. We're comparing ourselves with others, ourselves with idea of what we should be. We're not measuring ourselves against some standard or another because the act of measuring that relationship is already a subject, a cause and condition for ill will. How you relate to things is what they become. If you relate to things with a measuring mind, you will become measured and your measure will always be inadequate or distorted because you're not a measure. You're not a mile. You're not a pound. Wouldn't it be lovely to be free of such things? To be immeasurable? And that's going to come through heart, through awareness. So again, these Brahma-viharas, measureless states, are obvious antidote to ill will. But it isn't about just kind of throwing ideas of goodwill, but relinquishing the measuring mind. Because once you even set up the standard of goodwill, you can be critical about that. I'm not a very loving person. My compassion doesn't extend very far. You've just done it again. (laughs) Is that going to make it grow? Is that relationship, the relationship is going to make it grow? You might say, there's room for improvement here, it can grow, but that's more a positive statement. It fluctuates, sometimes it's not present, but making that a a profile that you then criticise because you label it myself. Your will is not myself, loving kindness is not myself, these are properties. If you linger upon wherever there's a glimmering of goodwill or refraining from ill will towards anything, (laughs) I'm sure that's there, and linger on it, make much of it and enjoy it, it tends to grow. And then we meet these areas where we feel suddenly afflicted, affronted, challenged, poisoned. So just sustain. Don't let that come in. Don't lose your, your beauty. Don't get phased by the challenges of animosity and frustration and indeed despair. Algae and slime. This gets pretty graphic, isn't it? This is you've experienced algae and slime. <laughs> kind of the mind just kind of sticky and heavy, and everything's foggy and blurred, and yeah. You know. <laughs> well, there's something about just maintain, just recognizing this. There's almost a 
uh, the energetic potential for the energy to dwindle. You know, naturally we have a certain degree of vitality, and if you like, metabolism, age, and so on, and energy can rise and it can also dwindle. And if you like, one of the classic times is the meal time. You know, just taking your food consumes a lot of energy to do the digesting, and most people feel a little bit heavy and sleepy as a result of that. Yeah. So there's these things, that, and then there's getting tired in the evenings. There's aging process. Don't have much juice. Then, um, <laughs> yeah. How does the mind not get possessed by those? So when it's clear there is a need here for rest, yeah. When that's the case, and the more that you cultivate meditation or these processes, you also realise there's just the, the the dullness or the heaviness that comes from unprocessed energy, just kind of stagnant system of stagnation in it because it's not fully flushed through or ventilated so we might say well okay for example obvious example walking don't have to walk fast but just the gentle movement of walking or even standing helps to maintain an energetic steadiness that allows these energetic debris or the stale energy to, to gradually be cleared by present vitality. And even if you you know take reclining meditation, which is quite difficult because the tendency is to just immediately go to sleep, but using quite a firm formal posture to recline it, so it's quite deliberate, quite carefully placed formal position. So you allow the mind then to, to drop, but the formality of the body helps to sustain a fundamental quality of awareness where you're not necessarily thinking very much, but you definitely know you're in rest state and you can be aware of that. The, the awareness is not um, obliterated by that or covered by that. So cultivating body these positions is uh, definitely a helpful strategy to acknowledge the energy is going down, the mind is not bright, uh, it's natural. There is also awareness of the back, the skin, the frame. It's upright, it's moving. Just turning down the requirements for precision into something whereby the the quality of awareness itself is still not subdued. And when we treasure uh, this awareness and clarity, and we do things like, is it possible to say, well, whatever makes for more vitality, I will incline that way. And not to use one's energies in enterprises, activities that serve no purpose. You've only got so much juice, you just can't throw it around. Yeah. And, uh, you know, most of us have got less of our life lies in front of us than what lies behind us. Right? 
how much more time do we have? We haven't got any juice to spare. <laughs> you can't chuck it around like when you're 25. <laughs> so you say, just don't bother. <laughs> don't bother with that, don't bother with that, don't bother with that, because it's going to use up. And the things that we um, assume will give us energy to only take energy from us. Because the energy of, of, uh, of stimulation, we get stimulated by, say, you know, coffee or movies or something. You know, you get stimulated. Stimulation is not coming from the thing, it's coming from you. <laughs> That's your energy getting, getting drawn out. So you think, I don't actually want stimulation. Stimulation it doesn't prevent sloth and torpor, it actually encourages it. <laughs> because once you switch the thing off, <laughs> go down. <laughs> right? So you get some tactics around that. Restlessness and anxiety. Ruffled, a bowl of water ruffled by the wind, disturbed and covered with waves. Mind possessed, awareness possessed by restlessness and anxiety. So I've seen this translated also as worry and flurry, agitation, inability to form a cohesive quality that the mind just keeps shivering, it can't settle into anything that's stable or co- coherent. Yeah. And anxiety. So there's a certain anxiety, restlessness, there's a certain loss of core stability. Yeah. Now why it's important to um, you know bring the topic of core fundamental stability, core stability, bring that up for investigation. When we follow the ways of sense contact and the ways of the world in general, it's always restless. Human human societies are restless shifting of agitation if you just contemplate it energetically. Yeah. I don't know if you ever go down a like you go down a highway and there's thousands and thousands of automobile, automobiles charging in one direction and thousands and thousands of automobiles charging in the other direction. You think, why don't you just sort of stay where you are? Because obviously it's not that good going this way because the other guys are going that way. <laughs> As you're shooting off in all directions, it doesn't stop. Day and night, lights flashing, everything. Like, where's everybody going? <laughs> Kind of got on a spaceship and zoomed up over the planet. You see the ceiling. Why are they doing stuff all the time? (laughs) Yeah, because it's I've got to go to work, or I've got to go to a movie, I've got to go and see so and so. Just gotta, 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 gotta. Otherwise, just go nuts sitting here. This friend of mine was saying, what, you know, what do you do? What do you do during the I said, oh, let's sit and, you know, sit and meditate in that little, little box, little kuti. It's quite small, forest kutis. 
What do you do? Well, you just sort of sit there. <laughs> you sit there. But what do you do? Well, I sit there. <laughs> so, I go nuts. I can't do that. I just go nuts staring at the wall. I want to paint something or fix something. I just go crazy. I sit there all, all afternoon. I say, yeah, and evening too. Oh, no. <laughs> And it goes up. You know, the attention, the attention rate is now so fractional <laughs> to be able to maintain stable attention for more than half a second. It's considered Olympic. <laughs> so I'm reading an article by a woman, and she was kind of professional sane, <laughs> decent person, and she didn't realise she was, she'd heard about this meditation stuff, so she plugged into something called Headspace, I think, where they, they, they talk you through 10 minutes of meditation, get this voice saying, okay, sit there, relax, just relax, we love you, you know, charm, easy, a little soft music, just kind of get you through 10 minutes, and and then, and then the end of it, oh, wonderful, come back. You know, so you've got to do sign up to this every day for a year, 10, 10 minutes. And she said, wow, you know, this is, it's just about made it. You know, this voice constantly getting a go. She said, but don't try it. Because if you do one minute, your brain starts to eat itself. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it just starts to, de- you know, you can feel it decomposing. And, uh, so try what don't not even one minute, maybe just one out breath is good enough. <laughs> because it's just too intense. I think, oh my goodness me. I know. And the other her friends, he shouldn't do that. And she said, What do you mean ten minutes without the phone on? That's six hundred seconds. <laughs> you know, maybe ten, but six hundred seconds of <laughs> no stimulation is like just this is barbaric. Her mind just could not hit that rate. It just got ratcheted up. The whole system got ratcheted up to such a hyper state that 10 seconds of non stimulation was like, Ugh. wow. <laughs> Clearly, you know, and most of us are plugged into these things. You know, switch the thing off, <laughs> you know. Just be with a tree. <laughs> Just notice how that moves and waves. You know, tether your attention to something that has got some movement in it. Just to try and stop altogether. That's, that isn't what happens. Yeah. If you're aware of something, it's always movement. However subtle. It's suffusing, permeating, glowing, radiant. That's the calmest. Yeah. That's the calmest. It's still some kind of movement. Yeah. And then, so if we just, if we can get even to being the body breathing, that movement. So movement helps to take you out of the restlessness. And if the movements, if your restlessness is such that that movement isn't adequate, you've got to do more movement. Go walking. Yeah. So your mind got something to tether itself to. Or think, think clearly. Just, just stop.
clearly thinking through thoughts of goodwill, for example. They are both, um, you know, active, you definitely engage with it, you do it, and it's an enjoyable experience. That just gives the mind something to, to bond to. And as it gets more bonded, particularly with qualities that are innate to itself, it's no longer turning towards the realm where restlessness and agitation are the norm. Learning the long breath, <laughs> and right through to the ending of the breath, is that open pause, where the willpower ceases. Feeling that opening, shifting, steadying, and then movement returns. So you'd be right through to the subsiding of movement, the beginning of movement. So you can take this sense of being with movement from something fairly obvious, like physical walking, yeah, or thinking, or subtler qualities such as breathing and vitality itself. This definitely helps, you know, the winds of the world. Lastly, hindrance of is translated as uncertainty. Um, and he likens it to <coughs> stirred, turbid, muddied, left in the dark. Mm. Yeah. So, as with the last instance, if we, you know, if we can find a supportive movement. It takes us back to core presence. Yeah. Because the movement is always registered by something that's not moving. Otherwise you couldn't recognize it as movement. If you're the movement, you can't recognize the movement. So there's a core presence or core fundamental awareness that doesn't move but you can't form it as an object. Every object has movement in it. Yeah. So one's relationship to movement is non-agitated. It's accepting. It's smoothing movement. It's steadying movement. It's becoming more rhythmic in movement, becoming more natural and organic and embodied in movement. That kind of movement will support the stillness of core presence. Similarly with uncertainty, doubt, lack of confidence, absence of confidence is the absence of core presence, which has no particular word or idea to it. So when we look for certainty, we generally look for certainty in terms of words and ideas. I've got it right. What should I do? What should I be? Was I, wasn't I? Give me some information, some affirmation. We're looking for words and ideas. They don't provide it. They don't provide that. 
the more we uh, associate or look for certainty in words and ideas, the more we lay the ground for doubt, because words and ideas are insubstantial. They melt. They stimulate. They give flares of mental energy, flares up with gladness. When one of these ideas rolls through, they're certainly stimulating and enjoyable, but they go out like sparks. And then we're left very much looking for the next thing to spark from, the next thing to give light to. We look for light in thought, illumination, clarity in thought, and it doesn't provide it. Only sparks. And certainly we can consider this even in terms of the vast amount of conceptual knowledge that there is, so much so we we could not possibly grasp all of the knowledge that there is conceptually, vast, beyond any individual. Still the unknown remains. Who are we? Why are we? Where did it begin? Where does it go? <laughs> that hasn't shifted. And these are the most important things we still don't know because they're not attainable by reason. The Buddha says, but this is knowable, penetrable through direct realization. This is beyond the sphere of mere reason. So when a doubt and uncertainty, we're looking for the, that stability in the wrong place, confidence in the wrong place. Confidence comes from allowing thought to move through and not being fascinated by it, and establishing core presence. You can listen. That's the simplest way to put it. You can be open. That's the simplest way to put it. You can be here. These are all very simple ways to put it because there's no words that really cover it. The affirmation of, of direct presence is a little more complicated. But the less one is fascinated by words and ideas, the more one sees the danger of them, the tendency to dogmatism, to conceit, to pride, to arrogance, to... Uh, you know, feeling one's inadequate because it doesn't have a stack of great ideas compared with so-and-so who's much more brilliant than I am. All this sort of stuff. This is just... I don't want to be there. (laughs) I don't... Do I have to be there? Do I have to know everything? And prove my ideas are better than anybody else's? Wrong place to be. So we just come back. That... Nibita, the weariness of that, the, the no longer fascinated by that, that by itself tends to encourage the mind to return to core presence. Not, I can't figure it out, but I don't need to figure it out. <laughs> Not, I'm, I'm so stupid I can't get an idea. No, I don't need an idea. Yeah. Because... Presence is beyond that. 
So when we cultivate uh, direct experience practice, this is what we're doing. And beginning to release some of the ideas and concepts and comparisons and theories that we probably most of us rely upon to a degree. Beginning, this is an unbinding of that to become mysterious, open, boundless, immeasurable, free. If we even have that aim in mind, we're going in the right direction to keep the water clear, beautiful, and to see something, jitta sees itself in its purity. <laughs>